0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback. We have lost our amateur spirit and need to rediscover the radical and liberating pleasure of doing things we love. In The Amateur, Thinker Andy Merrifield shows us how the many spheres of our lives, work, knowledge, home, politics, have fallen into the hands of box tickers, bean counters, and pedants. In response, he corrals a team of independent thinkers, wayward poets, dabblers, and square pegs who challenge accepted wisdom. Such figures as Charles Baudelaire, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Edward Said, Guy Debord, Hannah Arendt, and Jane Jacobs, show us the way. As we will see, the amateur takes risks, thinks the unthinkable, seeks independence, and changes the world. The amateur is a passionate manifesto for the liberated life, one that questions authority and reclaims the iconoclast as a radical hero of our times. The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love, by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Thanks to Occupy, Black Lives Matter, the Bernie campaign, and many other struggles, we are starting to win the battle of ideas. The neoliberal establishment's legitimacy has collapsed, and the right is struggling to make its case, thanks to the fact that it must tailor an ever more right-wing agenda to a segment of aging whites that they depend upon for votes, rendering them anathema to an emerging majority. But, and this is quite a caveat, winning power will require a lot more than winning the debate. In part, that's because of profoundly undemocratic features of American political institutions. Gerrymandering, voter suppression, and a Senate that disproportionately enfranchises low-population states, which in turn leads to a Supreme Court that reflects right-wing politics that are contrary to majority demands, all of which underwrites systematic alienation that sends people running from the ballot box, depressing voter turnout and, once again, benefiting a minority conservative position. And so we need to not only win, but we also need to win really big to overwhelm the system's anti-democratic barriers. And to do that, we need powerful organizations that can translate our popular support into formidable political power. After years in the wilderness, a broad swath of the left is just beginning to build organizations to do just that. These organizations, including DSA, Our Revolution, Justice Democrats, have different ideologies and different approaches, including in how to approach a democratic party that we all have good reason to despise. But they all share a commitment to seizing the moment for maximum advantage. My guests today are two journalists, Seth Ackerman and Kate Aronoff. Seth Ackerman is Jacobin's executive editor and the author of the article, A Blueprint for a New Party, a critical argument for how the left should pragmatically yet radically approach electoral politics in this two-party cartel system. Kate Aronoff is a writing fellow at In These Times, a contributing writer for The Intercept covering climate and American politics, and, for the purposes of this interview, the author of A Revolution from Within, a new piece published at Descent about our revolution and Justice Democrats. Before we get rolling, I need your support. I get ad money, but most of my funding, which I use for my own income to pay my producer and to cover all sorts of overhead— comes from donations from listeners, earbud affixed persons like yourself, at patreon.com slash the So please contribute what you can at p a t r e o n dot com slash the Okay, this is the last installment in this week's super series on Ocasio Cortez, which has included interviews with Ocasio Cortez, Ryan Grimm, Cynthia Nixon, Bernie Sanders, and Julia Salazar. First up today is Seth Ackerman. Seth Ackerman, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thanks for having me, Dan.
0: Your Jacobin article, Blueprint for a New Party, was published in November 2016. Today, what you sketch out is seems to me to be coming to life a bit and looking like our emerging political reality on the left. The central argument, if I can take a stab at summarizing it, is that the concrete institutional nature of American electoral politics means that we have to think beyond the confines of this debate that we've been trapped in forever on the left over whether, one, we need a third party, or two, instead, we should work to transform the Democratic Party— And the way we do that, you argue, is by building a militantly democratic and independent party-type organization while opportunistically hijacking the Democratic Party ballot line when we need to. Um, Explain what the problem is with the American electoral system that we need to look at in a clear-eyed way and what your solution is
1: the uh, the american electoral system is um a pretty much off the charts in terms of its uniqueness in its structure and its um in its institutional setup um almost all of uh, even to the point that almost all of the basic concepts and terms that are used in democratic politics throughout the world uh tend to have like a different meaning in uh, american in the american context uh in ways that often americans aren't even aware of so, for example, I mean, the, the most fundamental um, element here for me is the question of what it means to have a political party. What is a political party? People talk all the time on the left about the Democratic Party. Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, can you change it? Um, you know, who's in control? Who's up and who's down? Um, often people talk about the Democratic Party as if it were a party in the normal sense uh, that, it's, that it's used in other countries, but it really isn't. In most uh, places in the world, a political party is a private, voluntary organization uh, that has a membership. And in theory, at least, and there's always slippage between the theory and the reality, but in in the theory, the members are the sovereign body of the party and can decide what the party's program is, what its ideology is, what its platform is and have some mechanism to select its leaders and its candidates. And all of that they can do on the basis of the basic freedom of association in the same way that the NAACP or the ACLU or the American Legion, uh, their members have the right to do what they want with their organization. Uh, In the United States, that's not the case at all uh, with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, uh, because... um, We have an unusual – we've had an unusual development of our political system where – to sort of take a long story and make it a lot shorter, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the bosses of the two major parties undertook a wave of reforms to the electoral system that essentially uh, turned the political parties into kind of adjuncts of or arms of the government. In a way that would be really quite uh, shocking, you could even say, uh, like uh, norm eroding, if uh, if they were done in <laughs> in, in other countries. Um, I mean, it used to be that uh, when you'd go to college and you have you'd take like a comparative politics class, it would say back during the Cold War, it would have something on you know what the what is the nature of like the communist system, and one of the fundamental building blocks of the communist system was that, and what distinguished it from a democratic system was that there was a a merger of the party and the state you know, a blurring of the party and the state. It was a party state, you know, hyphenated. Um, and the United States is a party state, except that instead of being a single party state, it's a two party state. And that is uh, just as uh, much of a departure from the norm in the world as uh, as a one party state. Um, so the idea, for example, that uh, in the United States, the law require, basically requires the uh, the Democrats, the Republicans, uh, to set up their internal structures the way that the government I- instructs them to. Um, the government lays out the requirements of how they select their leaders and actually runs their internal elections of, of who get becomes the nominees, uh, the candidates who are going to run on their ballot line, um, and a host of other kind of considerations, including actually electing the the actual party officials. Uh, all of this stuff is is organized by state governments Uh, along the lines of their own rules. And, of course, when we say state governments, who are we talking about? We're talking about the Democrats and the Republicans. So it's a kind of a cartel arrangement in which the two parties have set up a situation that essentially is intended to prevent the emergence of the kind of uh, institution that in uh, in the rest of the world is considered a political party, a a uh, membership-run organization um, that has a presence outside of the political system, outside of the government, and can force its way into the government on the basis of some program that those citizens and members come uh, gather around, assemble around.
0: Even though your analysis obviously parts quite decisively with the orthodox third party approach, I do want to emphasize that, that they are entirely right about the fact that this is a two-party cartel system intentionally designed to exclude them.
1: Oh, that's absolutely true. And, uh, and you can see that in the way that the two parties have set up the rules regarding how other parties can get on the ballot. The United States is the only democratic country in the world uh, where the two governing parties, official parties, automatically get on the ballot. And every other party has to petition to get on the ballot with, a, of course, an enormous series of structural obstacles with signature requirements. And, and then the two parties send their lawyer goons to go and you know uh, strike those um, – those petitions off and, and keep them off the ballot. Uh, this kind of stuff is we're kind of used to it uh, in the United States. It's just kind of considered kind of just the cost of doing business if you're operating on the margins of the mainstream political system. But in other countries, again, it would be quite shocking, and it doesn't that sort of thing doesn't exist. Um, so that on that point, the you know like the purest attitude about uh, from supporters of the third party approach is absolutely correct. But then it's a question of what you do about it, and that's where I kind of uh, part ways with the with classic third-party approach.
0: And you call for the electoral equivalent of guerrilla insurgency. Tell me what that might look like or what it might be looking like right now.
1: What I hope to see is a situation in which um, the left can organize to the point that it can strategically and consciously exploit the gaps in the coherence of this system in order to create what would be the equivalent of a political party in every respect, um, in the the key respects. And that would be – it's a membership-run organization. It has its own name, its own logo, its own identity, and therefore its own platform and its own ideology. And the membership and the leaders and the candidates of that party go out and present their message to the electorate of the kind of society they want to see uh, with their with, – under their own label and logo and to distinguish themselves – the way that the Democrats distinguish themselves from the Republicans, this institution, this organization would distinguish its political vision from the existing visions of the mainstream parties. And the question is how you fit that within the institutional setup that we have now regarding how the government regulates the parties. So to answer your question about the extent to which this is what we're seeing right now, I think that what we're seeing are initial steps that are being taken by people who I think have this ultimate vision in mind, at least as a, as a strategic destination. And the question is, until we get to the point where we actually have the strength at the national level to challenge, to frontally challenge the mainstream Democrats and Republicans with that kind of uh, cohesive national approach, how do we get to that point? How do we get to the point where, where we, it's a kind of a chicken and the egg problem. If you don't have candidates who are visibly contesting for power under a different political stripe, that it's hard to convince rank-and-file voters and citizens and ordinary people that you actually exist, that you have a distinct vision, and that you have a message, and that it's one that they should care about. So that's where the sort of catch-22 comes in. Where do you start? And I think what we're seeing now with um, uh, with Ocasio-Cortez and so many other candidates at the, at the state and local level um, are attempts— by uh, especially members of Demo- the Democratic Socialists of America uh, to sort of take the first steps of having candidates um, operating, in this case, somewhat tangentially, but still pretty palpably under the under an alternative banner. So every article about uh, Ocasio-Cortez mentions that she's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, that she's a Democratic Socialist. Um, that is a major step towards... The 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 goal of having an alternative political vision sort of beamed into the consciousness of a larger uh, electorate in a way that is very difficult to do when you don't have candidates running and and having a chance of winning under that that kind of banner. Now, what what's what we don't what we haven't seen yet um, relative to the the vision that I kind of laid out is that the ultimate steps, and I would hope, uh, would be where we would get to the point uh, that. A membership run political organization uh, would actually have a relationship with these candidates that is um, much more relationship uh, with the candidates and also a kind of an ideological and and programmatic coherence um, that is that is more consistent than what we're able to get right now. Something that would look more like
0: an actual political party like the Labour Party in the UK.
1: Exactly. So you look at the Labour Party and what happened there. That's an actual membership organization. You can go to your local constituency Labour Party, become a member. You have your party card. You have the right to vote on the various uh, um, agenda items that are there. And what they did in 2015 was they were able to – for various kind of contingent reasons, it it became possible when it hadn't been possible before. But because of the nature of that party, they were able to have the left of that party – uh, uh, project their candidate uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, to the head of that party, and then he was able to uh, impose and and cultivate a new party image, a new ideological and programmatic identity. Um, and that's and and that's something that where there are levers of power within that party that allow Corbyn and those who have won those fights within the Labour Party to actually impose discipline. We don't have that yet. The Democratic Party itself doesn't have that yet because it's deliberately intended to be such a, a an institution that avoids allowing any kind of a democratic membership to impose discipline, and they're they've also and then they've of course set up the whole institutional system to make it so that nobody else can either, and that's the that's the that's the sort of a trickiness the 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 problem that that we need to overcome. So far, DSA, you know, I think that 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 goal is not quite where we are yet. We we don't have the we don't have the wherewithal quite yet. But we are taking the initial steps of creating a distinct political identity and having candidates who can project that that political identity uh, to a, a larger audience. And I think that's, that's an important first step.
0: And this independent power is so critical because otherwise we're not opportunistically seizing the Democratic Party lines. We'll end up just running people as, as Democrats. And you write that this is what Organizations like MoveOn, the style of politics that they get stuck in, which is a, a becomes a candidate centered approach where the base uh, wields little real power. You write, "quote In this partyless model of politics, it's the Democratic politician who goes around trying to recruit a base rather than the other way around."
1: That's right. And that's that's the that's the goal of the system as it's set up right now is to ensure that it's a candidate centered system, because that gives the candidates themselves the maximum freedom um, to balance, to act as kind of brokers between different constituencies. Usually that's between certainly with the Democratic Party, it's traditionally been they act as a kind of broker between a business constituency or a series of different business constituencies and various progressive or you know working class constituencies. Um, and they, you know, they sort of say, well, we'll give a little bit to this side and a little bit to that side, and they balance. And ultimately, it's up to them how they balance. It's up to the candidates. In, in that sense, the American, politi- American political parties are not membership organizations; they are essentially associations of office holders. And the point of the organization is to strengthen each individual office holder, to make them, to each make each politician as, as sort of to, to empower each politician um, vis-à-vis their own base. And what a party does is it reverses that. What a real party does is it has a situation where it's the membership who have the resources, who have control over the resources that the politician needs and use that, the control over those resources as leverage to ensure that the candidates that they put into office actually do the things that they promise to do, actually pursue the program that the membership wants. Now, what we're at the stage that we're at at this point um, is not yet – we're not yet at a situation where we've been able to uh, – where we have the power or the, the the political wherewithal to set up those kinds of mechanisms with these candidates. Now, I, I mean don't get me wrong. I think that um, this new wave of candidates at the local level, um, they got where they are through – in large part or at least partly through the work of members of DSA or other progressives in their districts – um, and they're going to need to to cultivate the and and keep the the loyalty of those activists um, uh, no matter what they do. But the fact is that if you look at the history of uh, of left wing politics, electoral politics in this country, it's full of, of examples of betrayal. You know, and you can sometimes you can call it betrayal. You can call it you know just the you know times became times changed the the position of certain politicians over time became more precarious they had to look for alternative sources of support right now we happen to be i think it's fair to say in an upswing uh, for the left our message, for various reasons, because of the Bernie Sanders campaign, just because of the financial crisis uh, and the you know the the bankruptcy of the existing model of politics, means that that we're in a moment where the the public is more and more open to left wing ideas and events always seem to be confirming our analyses rather than disconfirming them you know times times change and and there are upswings, and there are also downswings so uh, when you know at one po- at some point in the future we're going to be in a downswing again, and at that point. Any politicians that we've managed to put into into positions of power are going to find themselves under a lot of pressure and with a lot of incentives uh, to uh, try to find alternative sources of support for themselves uh, and therefore pursue alternative policies than the ones that we want them to pursue in order to cultivate those alternative sources of support. So, uh, you know, th- and that's the situation where you get betrayal or where you get, you know, uh, politicians uh, that you thought were, were loyal to you uh, – taking a different path for whatever reason. And they, they face complicated calcul you know calculations themselves. So at that it's at that point that it becomes that you really want to have and need to have institutional mechanisms for maintaining control and leverage over the politicians that you've put in positions of power. And that's what political parties historically have supposed to, to be have, have been, they have supposed to be, is they are they are the institutional mechanisms whereby ordinary people are able to collectively exert control over some cadre of politicians and the message that they that they present to the public and the programs that they vote for when they're in office, and if we lack that, if we if we fail over time, over the next however many years, to build those mechanisms, then I would fear that we were we'll find ourselves back in the same situation we were, let's say in the in the in the 70s or 80s. You know, where there were there were times there were there were politicians in the 60s and 70s who came out of those movements who um, uh, talked talked great talk and, and sometimes we're, were quite sincere about it and were put in office by activists or by leftists, by radicals. Uh, and then over time, as times changed, uh, they took a different direction and there was no means that the left had uh, to, to retain some kind of control over what that political identity was.
0: This is one reason why the argument for or why there's a growing emphasis, I think, within DSA to restrict to mostly restrict political endorsements to members of the organization. I think that bewilders some people like my mother, who I think texted me during the Alabama Senate race and asked why DSA wasn't supporting Doug Jones. (laughs) Um, But, but there's no, there's no real distinction between a proto party organization like DSA and a group like move on. If you just endorse any candidate that's better than the other, in every absolutely.
1: Race. Absolutely. And right now, those debates are happening uh, a lot within, within DSA, within all the different chapters, um, and they're, they're very healthy debates. The question is, you know, what are the criteria that need to be upheld in order for a DSA chapter or for DSA itself to endorse a candidate? And my view is that you want to uh, – I mean, there's a balance that needs to be struck, but you want to err on the side of stringency, uh, of being, having stringent criteria. Uh, rather than loose criteria. For one thing, if for no other reason, then it's it's a fact that there are already plenty of organizations, uh, progressive organizations that that act within the Democratic Party um that have those kinds of looser uh, criteria that are happy to support any candidate that is better than the Republican or or that is a little bit better maybe than the average democrat. There's moveon.org, there's um Indivisibles, there's Justice Democrats or or whoever. Um, and, uh, you know, and if you're a member of DSA, even, I, you know, I, you feel strongly that we should support this or that candidate, even if though they're not a socialist, they're not a DSA member. I, I, I think by all means, you, you have the right to, um, as an individual, go work on those campaigns or, or work for some other organization that is working with those campaigns. But if DSA is going to actually, uh, uh project a, a distinct, uh, ideological and programmatic, identity into the political system that doesn't currently exist in the mainst- in mainstream politics it's going to have to err on the side of stringency and i think that being a member of DSA calling yourself a socialist uh, that's pretty minimal um, because you know being a member of DSA doesn't require you to support any particular uh, platform on, you know, on pelty of expulsion or anything like that. It's not a, it's not a centralist, uh, you know, it's not a Leninist type organization, or it doesn't even ex- exert a tremendous amount of discipline over individual members. So to say, at least to to describe yourself as a socialist, accept that label uh, and identify with the organization, I think those are pretty minimal um, requirements. One day, hopefully we can get to a point where the requirements are, are more stringent than that.
0: It's not even that I, don't think that groups to the right of DSA have a role to play in endorsing these lesser of trivial candidates there are candidates in Rhode Island this year who I will likely be voting for who I would not want Providence DSA to endorse
1: mm-hmm. exactly that's that's the i mean i think that those are keeping separate in in one's mind the different objectives uh, that you want to pursue when you're in electoral politics is important. On the one hand, uh, it may be that you uh, you have the criteria in mind of simply just in sh- making sure that um, that the policy coming out of the government is the least bad possible. But if you only if you restrict yourself only to that objective, then you end up in the treadmill that we've been on the last several decades, where it's always the lesser evil, which means that you're 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 not giving yourself any means to make the lesser evil any better um and that's i think that's the the sort of Im, impulse and the reflex out of which uh this massive surge in DSA's membership has come from was this feeling uh that came out of the 2016 election that that attitude uh was bankrupt uh that that idea that you just support the lesser evil um and so now i think that we're seeing this kind of tentative uh, trial and error efforts by, by members of DSA to figure out what exactly that means in practice.
0: The possibility of this more independent base of power, I think, was, was expressed by Ocasio Cortez. I'm not sure if you saw this in her debate with Crowley when he asked her if she would endorse him in the general election, should he win the primary? And her response was that she would have to go back and ask the people who backed her to democratically make that
2: decision.
1: Well, Representative Crowley, uh, I represent not just my campaign,
2: but a movement. And I am proud to be endorsed by organizations like Democratic Socialists of America, the Movement for Black Lives, Muslims for Progress, and so on. And as a result, we govern ourselves democratically. So I would be happy to take uh, that question to our movement for a vote and and respond in the affirmative or or however they, they
1: respond. That is a fantastic answer and actually i I didn't see that I'm glad that you brought that up I, I actually didn't see that that's in, tremendously encouraging to me um, you know in historically uh, because the because the two parties in this country as the as our political system developed, um because we don't have the normal mechanisms of party, there was always this bizarre confusion uh, within the within the parties about since since the parties don't impose any kind of discipline, they have no membership that can impl- impose discipline uh, on their on their politicians, then what they had to figure out what is the sort of minimal requirement that you have to be to be a Democrat in good standing or a Republican in good standing, and in the nineteenth century, they came up with this standard that was called party regularity. So that meant you didn't have to be for anything, you didn't have to be against anything. You could be a Nazi, you could be a communist, doesn't matter. What's important is that you support the democratic candidate in the general election. That was that was the baseline. And it's a it's a clever system um because it ensures that ultimately um the loyal if you keep that standard then then the loyalty is always transferred is always sort of given up to um to whatever the image of the party is. So it's a very clever thing. If you require anybody who is running in a democratic primary to pledge to support blindly whoever ends up winning the primary, even if it's somebody who doesn't believe in any of the things that you believe in, then you've abandoned your independent political identity that you're trying to project, not just in this particular election, but in the political system as a whole. You've kind of thrown it away and said, I sort of relinquish um, my Political orientation and those of my constituents and supporters to whoever the Democratic Party happens to be today, and uh, that is uh, the answer that Ocasio Cortez gave. There is exactly the right answer, and and it's exactly the right answer because uh, you know there's a lot of people probably uh, who are who, who tend to vote Democrat who for whom that question that Crowley asked her is a is a tricky question. They'll say, yeah, isn't isn't it your responsibility if you're running in a Democratic primary to endorse? Crowley or whoever ends up winning that primary because they're the Democrat. And that's not an obviously easy question uh, for uh, for Ocasio-Cortez to answer in that position. And the answer she gave is exactly the right one because it grounds her answer in the democratic ideal of what her vision of politics is. She says, I have to go back to the people who supported me and ask them what to do. And I think that is the precise ground on which candidates need to be answering that question, because it then throws the question back to Crowley. Well, who are you asking? You know, who who is who is who is the constituency that you are consulting with when you make these kinds of political decisions? And the answer, obviously, is just himself and his cronies.
0: And she reveals in that moment that what he's proposing is sort of this boss to boss transactional thing. And in front of the very people whose votes they're ostensibly campaigning for, she exposes that.
1: Exactly, she shows that the that the relationship that Crowley wants to p- portray himself as having, uh, with with his own electorate, is actually not the relationship that he's that he's projecting. It's really a it's it's really like a, a boss like you say a boss to boss transaction. So it, yeah, it's a it, that's a that's that's not only a very good answer, but I think that that's something that um, that you know m- people in DSA who are supporting uh, other candidates they should keep an eye on that, and that's a I think should become a sort of a standard part of the of the repertoire of the rhetoric
0: we've gone over and made very clear that your argument is not that the so-called democratic wing of the democratic party should take over and transform the democratic party into a working class party because that's actually impossible given that the democratic and republican parties are not even parties but i want to pivot now to the problem with the the third partyist kind of third party exclusive approach and I, I liked what you, what you said before in terms of thinking about the question of seizing the Democratic Party line by th- thinking through that in terms of thinking as the Democratic thinking of the Democratic and Republican parties as de facto appendages of the state because th- those two ballot lines are by and large, the exclusive institutionalized means to winning state power. And so for me, what I take from your article is that an absolute refusal, to use those two ballot lines is more akin to an anarchist position. No diss on my anarchist listeners, but because it refuses to any attempt to win state power because of the rotting character of that state.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. And um, I mean, I, I don't think that we should be dogmatic on either side of, of the equation. Um I think that the, we should treat the system as it exists with the contempt that it deserves. That in other words, that these, that these are yeah. really just pretenses, the idea that there's this party that you're, that you're voting, you know, in an internal election for when you go to a primary or that this is like a a level playing field where every party gets their own, you know, gets a fair shot. Uh, I don't think that we should dignify that pretense um, with the, you know, with the, with the, with the. But by taking it as sufficiently seriously to say, "Oh, by 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 casting a vote or running a candidate on this particular ballot line, that somehow I've joined a party," that's the that that's the the illusion that the system wants you to, to kind of be trapped in. Um, instead you know you should I, I actually think that, that part of the strategy needs to be uh, as we run these candidates as we project our message we also need to in- incorporate within that a critique of the system itself of the electoral system, the political system um, and part of that is to is to is to be very open about how um, how how flimsy and transparent we find this whole setup to be so that you know if the law says that you have to you know register as a Democrat and do all these different things. We'll do that because that's what the law says, because that's what we need to do to put our message out to, to the public. But we're not doing it because we actually buy into the idea that there is some Democratic party to which one can have loyalty or be a member or anything like that. But on the other hand, you know, I I have to say that that there's also the potential for dogmatism on the other side. Um, You know, I think that there are situations probably where it would make sense, in fact, uh, to run an independent candidate. Um, I'm not a big fan of the idea of like—
0: That's how Bernie came to power in Vermont.
1: Exactly that's exactly right. And um, there, I think that there are many, many uh, districts and races all around the country where, because of the specific uh, particular situation of that place and the, and the character, the the partisan makeup or whatever, where it would make sense to do that. Um, And that's actually an, an excellent way to show the, our lack of dogmatism about, about the whole system.
0: I was very involved in the Nader 2000 campaign as a, as a high school student. And after years of, you know, initially being involved with and then observing and knowing people in in third party politics i think one of the most major ironies is that third party people like people who are just their 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 political program is engaging in a third party like the green party one of the the ironies is that they're so they're so marginalized as these fringe characters by the media but you will not meet people who more sincerely believe in the story that american democracy tells about itself and who believe that by highlighting the contradiction between that story and the ugly reality that everything will just change all of a sudden
1: yeah you know that's something i i, I mentioned in my article is that the the system has this exerts this kind of strange effect where it by in some ways it's more powerful and more effective in constricting the choices to the two major parties by making it just possible not 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 uh, not on a level playing field but just possible to have a third party to get a third party on the ballot by jumping through a tremendous number of hoops and then having very little chance of of success um you know because it's a kind of a uh, I mean, I, I I know somebody, John Schwartz uh, made a joke years ago where he said, you know, the Soviet Union never would have collapsed if they decided that instead of one party, they'd have two parties that agree with everything about everything except abortion. And, <laughs> and you know, in some ways, having those the, the, the possibility of having those third parties has the strange effect where where it ends up attracting kind of like a magnet, uh, those people who um, who. Whose vision of politics is very is you know it often takes a very kind of literalistic form where uh if you don't like the Democrats and the Republicans, which is great we we all agree uh then obviously the thing you have to do is is fight where fight the way they're fighting uh is to fight on their terrain and say, well, they've got a ballot line, the Republicans have a ballot line, we'll take a ballot line, and we'll do all the things that they do just like they do it on paper um but that's that but in a way
0: that's structurally built to Permanently marginalize them.
1: Exactly. So it looks like they're they're competing with the major parties in form, but in substance, they're not really. Um, and, you know, it attracts people who, who have that attitude towards politics. So it becomes more about just the act of putting their, the third party's name on the ballot and announcing that you're the alternative than it is of actually organizing people, knocking on doors, doing all the kinds of things that Ocasio-Cortez did.
0: An irony here is that for third party movements of the left, especially for for Marxists who are third party absolutists is that this is all premised on an idealist rather than a materialist understanding of electoral politics.
1: The ritual of inscribing the party's name on the ballot takes substitutes for the actual political work of, you know, talking to people, uh, putting your message out there, organizing people, having meetings and so on. Um, And that's definitely not what uh, certainly not what Marx meant when he urged, you know, the workers to form their own party. He certainly wasn't talking about the ballot line because that did not exist at the time. I'm Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast and you can support it at patreon.com.
0: Hey, this is Dan Denver, the host of this show, who was just asking a guest questions about how to transform society or something of the sort. This week, we are bringing you seven interviews all in one week, reflecting on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory in New York and what it all means for the future of left politics. We can only afford to put this much work into the show thanks to you, our listeners, who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. And yet there's more. Contribute $5 or more and get access to our weekly newsletter. $10 or more. And I'll send you excellent lefty books in the mail. OK, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thank you all. Back to the show. As much as Democrats like to, to this day, blame Ralph Nader for everything, I think it's pretty clear that Bernie running as a Democrat was a far more potent threat to their power and that the the blaming Nader thing is more of like a political ideological exercise to legitimate them than an actual explanation for what happened in 2000. Um, And then you have you have Bernie and they've been saying forever, you know, that the left is horrible because they run spoiler candidates. And then you have Bernie running in the party.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, the conclusion that you draw from that you have to draw from that is that they don't ultimately care about the about you know, spoiler versus non-spoiler. They're going to oppose any challenger to whatever the the mainstream or the leadership of the Democratic Party is, whether they run inside, you know, inside a Democratic primary or outside. On the other hand, um, you you when you compare those two approaches, Nader versus versus Bernie, yeah, the the other side is going to hate on you either way. Uh, but then you have to ask the question well, which one ended up being more effective? And having also It's not a close call. It's, it's not <laughs> a close call. I mean, I remember I was there at uh, Madison Square Garden uh, when Nader had his big uh, rally. I paid him $20. And, uh, you know, it was kind of exciting for a day. Um, but and at saw the end Phil it,
0: Donahue and Adi DeFranco.
1: Yes, all of that. And, um, you know, uh, at the end of the that whole process, it, 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 one had to stop and think well, what exactly did we accomplish?
0: which was a question not asked often enough because it was these cynical, concern-trolling liberals, people who are our political enemies, making the argument that it's Nader's fault that Bush was elected, even though these third, perennial third-party candidacies that go nowhere are a systemic feature of the two-party system. So it's a bullshit argument. But then the left finds itself defending itself against that, and no one's asking not the kind of blame question, but the the what did we accomplish and can we do this better? Question.
1: Exactly. We we end up accepting kind of the premise of of the argument. But when once we get into those endless arguments with liberals, but I, I also think I want to emphasize the other side of it. Bernie ran in the Democratic primary, so he didn't take the Nader route. On the other hand, he did not. Bernie didn't um, adopt all of the other trappings of being a Democrat. So he didn't. Identify as a Democrat. Uh, he did. He chose not. He could have very easily, um, had he been a more opportunistic politician, he could have the year before he decided to run switched his party registration in Vermont to Democrat, which wouldn't have any real effect, but it would be, you know, a symbolic gesture that would announce, look, I'm. I, I consider myself a Democrat. He could a have, symbolic
0: gesture to quixotically placate. MSNBC naysayers.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yes, and you know, uh, he could have, um, you know, he could have done a lot of things to symbolically af- associate himself more closely with the Democratic Party, and he deliberately chose not to do that, and that was, that was smart and and wise both from a long term point of view because it. Uh, tremendously increased the the mass sort of mass awareness and consciousness that there were you could have alternative politics in this country that were not just Hillary Clinton versus you know Mitt Romney or, or Donald Trump, but also in the short term I think it helped him too because the, uh, you know this country uh, has developed this uh, extremely tribal uh, polarized. Uh, political um, confrontation between the, these two party identities that are often end up being kind of empty identities that people symbols that people, you know, one half of the country fights the other half on. And it's not even half versus half. Well, look That's at true. how
0: Republican look at how Republican voter ideology has been utterly transformed by having Donald Trump. At the head of the party.
1: Exactly. That just that kind of shows the emptiness of it. And I say half versus half, but it's not even half versus half. These are relatively small percentages of the country who are actively, emotionally engaged in these, you know, partisan political fights that you kind of, that you see on MSNBC versus Fox. Uh, and huge numbers of people look at this and and with disgust, and and they see it as empty. You know, tribal partisanship uh, where people make an argument just because it's their side making the argument. And when Bernie was running as in the Democratic primary, he could have easily come to be seen by ordinary voters who are being introduced to him for the first time as just another Democrat on the Democrat team. You know, um, uh, fighting the fight for that party, but instead he deliberately took a step back from associating himself with the party and said, "I, you know, am critical of the Democrats and Republicans," and that again is one of the kinds of steps, just like what uh, Ocasio Cortez did in that debate, one of those steps that you can take to sort of help begin the process of shaping an alternative identity that that is viable in the mainstream.
0: I very much agree with what you said about the way Bernie's non non-affiliation with the Democrats, even while running in the primary, the the appeal that can hold to ordinary, the many ordinary people who are utterly alienated from electoral politics in this country. And I think it's one of the greatest political disservices that most political journalism does is is just in the way they f- frame their coverage of any race, a mayoral race, a congressional race, a gubernatorial race, a presidential race, Whatever. It's as though any person they stop on the street has this like very well thought out ideological or partisan position on who they're going to support, where I did a a, a piece on southwestern Pennsylvania a number of years ago where I made a point of actually just including the interviews with people who are like, I hate politicians. And that was all Mm. they had to say, Mm. because that's like a very ordinary opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean and it's a, it's a much more common opinion than somebody who's able to give you the whole MSNBC catechism, you know, from beginning or to end. Or the Fox catechism. Or the Fox catechism. Um and you know, if you look at at, at opinion polls, it's kind of if you were an observer from Mars, Uh, Or, or even from just another country, and you looked at this, you know, the system where we it's 100% wall to wall, two parties and only two parties, and yet when when you go and look at opinion polls, the the public opinion about the two parties has never been more negative. And in fact, that you know, the number of people who, the percentage of people who are unwilling to call themselves a Democrat or Republican is at a record high. Uh, It has no effect whatsoever on the actual political system, which I think gives you an indication of how how rigged the system is in that sense. But it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way in which it's rigged that's very, very tricky to confront. So I think that those kinds of steps of, of accepting that you're going to have to run on, on another party's ballot line, but at the same time making proactive efforts to show that you're not just another member of that team, um, those are the steps you have to take to eventually get to the point where hopefully in the future we can actually have a, a formal institutional identity in a way that we don't now.
0: And if this independent force on whatever ballot line takes power, then electoral reform that that breaks the two party system has to be a priority.
1: Yeah, and historically that's how electoral reform has tended to happen. I mean, you know, so some people, for example, would say we should have proportional representation. Uh, that, I, I guess that would probably be a good thing. I, I don't have. I mean, I, I think that you could go one way or another on that. But the the point I want to make is that proportional representation came to other countries not because that's you know, one day politicians just decided this is a good idea. It came because all countries originally had our system, which is just first past the post, and then third parties, so called third parties, would start competing with those mainstream parties and, and the danger of splitting the vote became a threat to the mainstream parties, to the incumbent parties. And it was Which is that- what
0: just happened in Maine.
1: Which is just what happened in Maine, yes, exactly. Where the
0: and everyone was like, "Well, this is not okay. That's that this that this extremely dangerous far right person who does not represent mainstream Maine opinion by any stretch of the imagination keeps getting elected."
1: Yeah, and in that case, you know, unfortunately, it happened by the system getting kind of broken from the right. But uh, hopefully, we could do it from the left. Either way, you know, once you start running, um, once you start having a third. You know, a a political identity that can be have a mass scale, then it becomes a threat to the mainstream parties where they say, oh, no, we can't split the vote with them. We need to have some way where people can vote, you know, in a more proportional way or more rational way so that we don't lose everything if the vote is split. Um, that's so. I think that you know a lot of people uh, ask me, you know, why didn't you say anything in your article about the need for to agitate for electoral reform? And I'm all for electoral reform. I think that would be great. I obviously I'm totally against the system that we have now. But it's
0: a cart before the horse, horse issue.
1: It, absolutely. And you know, for one thing, it is absolutely impossible to really organize around in most cases uh, until until the the sort of like you say cart before the horse. It only becomes possible to organize around it once the political crisis has happened that shows everyone the need for electoral reform. So that's what happened in Maine, And people are, you know, are saying how how can we how can we deal with this problem? Um in other countries, you know, in the past it was a labor party would be organized, they would challenge the liberal party, and the liberal party would say we're never going to win another seat again by splitting our vote in this way unless we change the political system through proportional representation or something. But to start by by going to Ordinary Voters and having this very abstract plan for how this other voting system is going to work, um, it sounds good on paper. But in practice, it never goes anywhere. It's really not possible to organize people around these kinds of procedural issues. So you first have to just try to plow your way into the system, cause a crisis, and then the crisis will help you get the electoral reform you want.
0: Yeah, Fair vote is doing excellent work. They will never lead a mass movement.
1: Exactly. And they're a great resource for information and all the rest of it. But um, but uh, you know, unless until we actually have radical challenges to the system actually entering the ring, we're not going to actually have that reform.
0: I want to talk about two other case studies. We talked about the Green Party. You discussed the U.S. Labor Party, which some but probably a lot of listeners don't know the history of. You write that like a lot of the rest of the left, it was confronted with, on the one hand, this, this system-induced collective action dilemma, whereby – you need to run candidates to build a profile and thus mass support, because if you don't mount challenges, you're relevant. But on the other hand, if you do mount serious challenges, you confront the spoiler issue and are you know, demonized as a, a counterproductive pariah doing the work of the Republican right. Um, in terms of stuff that hasn't come up in our discussion of the Green Party, what, what do you think is important to highlight about the Labor Party's experience? <laughs>
1: I think that the Labor Party experience, which was really – it was thinking about that experience that um, w- that initially led me to the ideas that I laid out in my article um, because in many ways they did all the right things. Um, they were in the – they that was a, a – you know, the party was organized in the mid-90s when there was a tremendous backlash within the labor movement against NAFTA and Clinton uh, and including at some of the – in some of the biggest industrial unions in the country, and so um, Tony Mazzocchi, who is a great left labor left labor leader of the oil and chemical workers, he helped organize uh, his union, which was a pretty big union at the time, and then a few other large industrial unions. They formed this labor party, and um, and then the question was, you know. In some ways, it, unfortunately, it ended up being sort of an afterthought. But what? How are we going to relate to elections? And they never had the attitude, uh, because these are very practical uh, labor people. In addition to being radicals, they never had the attitude of the kind of purist third party, green party sort of idea. They they always uh, believed that they that they needed first to build up enough support and only then to participate in elections. But like you said, they they ended up in a dilemma because it, Americans don't understand quite. And it's quite understandable that they don't understand it. They don't understand the idea of a so-called party that doesn't run candidates. But on the other hand, if you're not running can if you if you need to run candidates and you're still a marginal political force, then if you run on a separate ballot line, like you said, you're you're going to end up splitting the vote and you're going to alienate exactly the constituencies that you need to cultivate the most because those constituencies are the ones who are going to be harmed by the most by having throwing an election to a Republican. So um, that was the dilemma they faced, and. you know, in retrospect, the the organizers of that project, some of them, were very clear that they that they should have they they had they had never really thought through how they were going to relate to elections, uh, the way that they needed to, and um so I, you know the the alternative models that I'm that I laid out in my article were in many ways intended to, um offer ah the possibility of a of a kind of a third way. You
0: also critique not harshly but I think fairly and complexly the Working Families Party model as struggling to thread this needle of independence combined with effectiveness. In 2014, they endorsed New York Governor Andrew Cuomo over Zephyr Teachout, who was mounting a left challenge. And as a result, they lost a lot of credibility amongst the grassroots left. But this year, well after you published your article, they endorsed Cynthia Nixon, which led to an exodus of these critical union backers who are allied with Cuomo, what do you make of the current state of the WFP and their trajectory?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting example. And obviously it is in many ways um, uh, an exception to the usual uh, political dilemmas that we've been talking about involving the left and third parties because the Working Families Party is, has always uh, had its base in New York State, and New York State has this unusual uh, electoral law, uh, or the, this, the, the electoral law is unusual in that it permits these fusion candidacies. So uh, every other state, pretty mo- almost every other state, uh, it, you're, no party is allowed to place uh, the name of another party's candidate on their own ballot in new york you're allowed to do that that's the sort of um the mechanism that wfp has always strategically attempted to exploit uh and you can you can argue how successful they were they certainly had a lot of policy successes you know i think it's kind of a glass half empty glass half full kind of situation uh they had a lot of policy successes over the years using that fusion approach to pressure democrats to move to the left on the other hand uh it didn't it really never kind of broke out of the mold of um kind of machine democratic politics uh, the you know and and the proof being that they ended up being forced to endorse uh, or felt compelled to endorse Andrew Cuomo in 2014 so what's happened since then i think i mean my my i'm not a, i don't follow this stuff as closely as as some people do but i i'm very encouraged i think that ultimately um the experience that they had where they endorsed Cuomo really i think put them in a in a in an existential crisis of what is what are we doing here if if we're just going to be endorsing a guy who uh, in many ways represents the absolute worst of the, the democratic establishment that we originally organized this party to challenge then we you know then why why are we doing this at all and i think that's obviously what eventually led to them taking this uh, other approach and endorsing Nixon. And yes, they've lost a lot of uh, their union backers. But, um, you know, I think that had this happened, you know, 15 years ago, maybe that would spell the end of WFP. Uh, But I think that in some ways, um, now might be the perfect time for this to happen uh, of a clean break, you know, the the need to make a clean break with um, some of the more hidebound elements of the labor movement. And also, you know, I've heard that there's some kind of to, with some of these unions there may be kind of a double a double game going on where they they withdrew from the WFP because they felt that they had to uh, in order to stay in the good graces of the governor who you know controls a lot of the purse strings that their members depend on those unions but at the same time they may be some of them are actually sort of silently sympathetic to to WFP um, And uh, I certainly think that they, in the long run, didn't have any other choice. They could not keep endorsing uh, Cuomo-like candidates because at at that point it would eliminate their reason for being.
0: You do, though, emphasize that unions are key to building this independent electoral power, whether we're talking about WFP or, as we've been talking about, DSA. But in the Ocasio-Cortez case, at least, as far as I know, unions did not flock to her candidacy. Do you think that might begin to change?
1: First of all, I, I should say that um, unions will absolutely have to be central to this kind of political project if it's going to move beyond, you know, ones and twos. You know, getting getting Ocasio Cortez uh, nominated in the Bronx or getting uh, a couple candidates in Western Pennsylvania um, in state legislatures, state legislatures, which happened a few months ago from a DSA chapter there. Um, those those are victories are really important. They build morale. They they Democratic socialist politics into the mainstream, but they are obviously nowhere near the scale that's needed to um, exert a a sea change in American politics. There are something like, I think, 3,000 state legislative seats in this country. And, you know, at the end of this process, if all goes as well as it can, if you include Lee Carter in Virginia and those those uh, candidates in Pennsylvania and so on, we may have, I don't know, five, six uh, by the end of this electoral cycle. That's obviously, you know, it's far less than a percentage point. It's not enough. If we are going to scale this up at some point in the future to the point where it becomes a, na- a truly national political phenomenon that rivals the Democrats and Republicans, there's absolutely no way it can happen without a central large core of labor support because only trade union on the left, only trade unions have the institutional scale, the contacts with millions of ordinary voters who are not already politicized, not already ideologically on the left. Um, I think that's absolutely necessary, but it's not. It's not necessary to do the ones and twos. It's, you, you don't need. Uh, and Cortez, mm-hmm. Cortez proved that, and so did these other candidates. You don't necessarily need uh, unions in order to get somebody elected. And once you get that person elected, then they could hopefully serve as a kind of a. A a platform, you know, she can, as as the socialists in the 19th century used to say, she can talk, you know, talk to the workers through the window of parliament. um, And that can be a a role. She can be kind of a tribune figure. Um, And those are very useful roles that we can have until the point where we build things up. But uh, it's true that labor is not at this point um, in a position to be supporting these kinds of insurgencies. Uh, Historically, it's always been when labor is strongest and most confident and growing, that it has had the confidence to support political insurgencies Uh, when it's on the defensive it has very little choice but to cling to whatever resources it already has and part of those resources are labor's relationships with incumbent politicians so we're going to what we're going to need is more of what we saw in the last few months with uh, the strikes in West Virginia and in Oklahoma and other states involving teachers those were actually grassroots rebellions uh, of the kind that in the past have led to um, to to real sharp movements to the left uh, among unions where they will then take the step of supporting insurgent candidates. But it's going to have to be a lot bigger because we're going to need a lot more resources.
0: My last question is about how the socialist left should approach the process of really quite surprisingly rapid radicalization that's underway right now. There has been this remarkable movement to the left with, for example, once fringe ideas like uh, abolish ICE becoming increasingly mainstream, not only on the left, but across kind of like the liberal left more broadly. But in a recent piece in The New Republic, friend of the show Sarah Jones attacked Bernie Sanders from the left for failing to endorse abolishing ICE. So my question is, as Bernie's base radicalizes, how should we approach the national politician who did so much to set this process in motion and who is still likely far and away our best shot at the presidency in 2020.
1: I think that the, the answer to that question isn't all that different from um, from what it was the first time around. I mean, there was pressure put on Bernie uh, in the early days of his challenge to Hillary Clinton on a number of issues. And uh, you know some of them were more constructive than others. Uh, I, you know, for example, he came around. Um, I don't think it required a tremendous amount of arm twisting, but uh, he definitely increased the the visibility of his message about uh, police violence and uh, mass incarceration uh, in a way that was responding to um, uh, to criticisms that he'd received uh, on the left. Um, and I think that on this uh, issue of uh, abolish ICE, I think it's it's probably early. I mean I, I'm not making predictions and I don't have any inside information, but I think it's probably a little bit early to, to say that he's going to take some sort of uh, hard position at odds with um, with what the left wants on this. The question of what abolish ICE means even for the those politicians who have said they're in favor of it is a little bit – still a little bit vague. Um, I, there's nothing wrong with – with Criticizing uh, Bernie uh, or with any of these candidates, um, and as far as the radicalization is concerned,
0: and just a quick a quick aside know. on that, and to the extent to the extent that politici- Democratic politicians, to Bernie's right, can embrace the slogan of abolishing ICE, when what they might just mean is reconstituting basically the same institution under a new name, we should be careful about that.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Uh, you know, I- abolish ICE is uh, has a lot of as a slogan has a lot of kind of creative ambiguity about it where, um, some people can interpret it as basically saying, uh, you know, no borders bring back or bring, or, back, or the bring INS. back the INS. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it could go either way. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't think that, um, there's that we're yet at the point where there's going to be mass support for, for the, the, the radical interpretation of it, of eliminating borders and eliminating all immigration regulation. Um, but uh but there, but the fact that the slogan uh has in fact caught on i think is indicative that that um, in, including among some relatively mainstream politicians uh is a good sign and and the fact that Bernie hasn't yet uh you know glommed onto it um I think it's not not yet clear exactly what that means. nobody has ever mistaken Bernie Sanders for you know an ultra for for an ultra leftist. Um, so I'm not I'm not terribly surprised by that. Um, my understanding is that he's always had a good record uh, on immigration issues, at least uh, from the point of view of um, immigration-focused or uh, progressive organizations. They've always given him high marks. Um, I think that the 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 more difficult question going down you know down the road is when you get into policy issues that are. More complicated. You know, there's some issues that political scientists will call them easy issues and hard issues. There are some easy issues that are easy in the sense that it's not, it's very easy for people to, uh, for ordinary people to quickly understand. Uh, Understand where they stand on the issue, uh, based on their own values. So, you know, gay marriage is something that most people can understand what gay is and what marriage is, what same sex is and what marriage is, and and they can put those together and uh, with their own values and decide what where, where they stand on it. But something even as as relatively simple for for this kind of policy issue as like a single payer health care then gets involved with a lot of complexities. And it's where the complexities happen that that it becomes possible for candidates, for politicians op- who opportunistically want to uh, – f- cultivate a left wing base but at the same time want to also maintain the support of more conservative interests and, and business interests that's where they're able to creatively kind of redefine terms and it, it put a lot impose a lot of fine print on the on the positions that they take and that's why that's where the betrayal tends to happen is with the hard issues where they'll say i'm for whatever the slogan is and then when the bill gets written it turns out to be you know the sort of um, uh, Rube Goldberg type devices that New Democrats and and um, centrists have always been putting out as substitutes for for the radical changes that we actually need. That's where you need that's where the need for institutional control uh, and leverage over politicians by a, a real mass engaged mass membership. That's where it becomes important. is because it, you need people to be keeping their eye on the ball there, able to spread the word Um, To get everyone on the same path, what organizing is, is getting everyone on the same page to understand where their interests are, what they should be keeping their eye on, and holding those people's feet to the fire, even on those more complex things. So it's the complex issues that I worry about uh, in, in terms of politicians saying one thing and actually doing the other.
0: Seth Ackerman, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Seth Ackerman is Jacobin's executive editor and the author of the article, Blueprint for a New Society. Next up is Kate Aronoff, a writing fellow at In These Times and a contributing writer for The Intercept covering climate and American politics. And what we'll be talking about is her new article at Dissent, A Revolution from Within, which is about our revolution and justice Democrats. Kate Aronoff, welcome back to The Dig.
2: Thank you for having me back.
0: Both Our Revolution and Justice Democrats come out of the Sanders campaign and with similar aims, but they are fairly different as organizations. To set the table, explain what these two groups are, who they organize, what they do.
2: Yeah. So as we mentioned, both of these groups were sort of formed out of uh, or inspired by Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign for uh, in the Democratic primary um, and on the surface they do very very similar work um, and like the folks that I talked to from each organization sort of acknowledge that um, but there are some some key differences so um, at the core of what both of them do is to organize um, largely within the Democratic Party um, to elect, very progressive candidates to office, um, left-leaning in some cases, and along a set of values. And so Justice Democrats um, has a number of policy priorities that they've outlined um, as being the things that they um, require candidates who they back to support. And so that includes things like Medicare for All, um, banning super PACs, swearing off corporate money, Abolishing ICE. There's a whole a whole list of these things, and uh, they will back candidates based on that. And so, uh, to start with, Justice Democrats they provide um, a number of resources that came out of um, the Sanders campaign. And so, uh, one of those are these sort of uh, technological um, platforms um, that allow for things like text banking. Um, And voter contact that are actually very hard for sort of grassroots campaigns to get um, get access to. They can be very expensive. Um, Finding someone with the know how to do it um, can be difficult, depending on what kind of race you're running for. Um, I looked at
0: the price tag for uh, the sort of mass text organizing tools, and yeah, not cheap.
2: Yeah, yeah. And if you are, you know, if you are a sort of uh, outsider candidate in, you know, Tennessee or um, Texas or, or somewhere, you know, where there, there may not be a sort of wealth of uh, progressive electoral infrastructure around, that can be really helpful. And so um, they connect candidates with those tools. Um, they also do a lot of fundraising um, for um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's race. They raised about $100,000, um, which is a pretty impressive thing. Um, impressive number yeah. for grassroots fundraising. Um, and they have been focused on um, congressional campaigns. So on the House, our Revolution, um, on the other hand, um, has uh candidates sort of uh up and down the ballot. Um, they in, have endorsed a few races nationally. Uh, um, a lot of their work is looking at sort of down ballot races. Um, and they provide sort of similar resources, but a big um a big thing that uh our revolution does which Justice Democrats um does not do is that they have um, these local chapters um, that have built out and are fairly different depending on um, where you look. So um, places like Wisconsin, um, there are some chapters in Iowa, um, sort of this this wide network of chapters um, who will um, come to the national and ask them to um, endorse a candidate um, from from that level. Uh, And so, It uh, prides itself as being sort of a a democratic organization um, and uh, sort of feeds candidates up through that. And so our evolution being the official outgrowth of the Bernie Sanders campaign has that to offer to um, candidates who do end up getting a national endorsement, um, which is a huge list. Um, Obviously, again, would be something that would be um, incredibly difficult for a local grassroots candidate to replicate. Um, that involves things like fundraising emails um publicity uh the sort of uh weight of of our revolution's national staff, which isn't huge but but can offer some some real benefits um and uh yeah and and they also you know have a have a sort of similar um outlook in terms of the the types of candidates they're um excited to support
0: to what degree is our revolution? at this point in time, more of a centralized top-down D.C. outfit? And to what extent does it have local chapters with, with real power?
2: I think it depends on on who you ask. I mean, I think there are folks who are working in our evolution chapters um, locally who feel, um, you know, have, have find a lot of, of meaning in that work, Um I think, you know, like any organization, our revolution is going through some serious growing pains. I wrote this piece, um, the bulk of this piece, actually just before this sort of big Politico article came out, um, looking into some very, very legitimate, some I think not quite as legitimate um, criticisms of our revolution's work. And um, I think there are, there are some issues of centralization and, um, maybe, maybe decisions that shouldn't be made in in Washington being made in Washington. Um, But they, um, yeah, I think are are a very young organization and um, the folks I've talked to who have been involved in um, political work of this type for a long time are just, you know, not surprised at all (laughs) that uh, an organization which is so young and in some ways working from from, you know, so little, so little infrastructure is going through um, some of the challenges that they are, which again, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize.
0: Let's not minimize those. There are, as you mentioned, both more substantive concerns and some that are seem like bullshit shots from the establishment. Um, The substantive ones are concerns that caused major Latina leaders to exit the organization. And the BS ones to me seem more about chiding the organization for not winning enough primaries. Can, can you lay out the the controversies and your take on them?
2: Yeah, that's right. So I think, I mean, you, you said it exactly right. I think some of the glaring issues which um, have popped up in our revolution and were, were real hindrances, I think, to the Sanders campaign um, are around uh, issues of race and in particular um, uh, giving sort of proper attention to um, Latino issues and um, immigration, in particular, um, is something that came up in this in this Politico um, article I referenced. Staffers um, who have been longtime leaders in uh, the immigrant rights movement um, torn documented, sort of asking for time to go and uh, work to defend DACA, for instance, um, and not being granted time off, um, and just consistently sort of not um, you know, looking to build real ties, um, with, with Latino communities, um, and sort of dismissing, dismissing those, those things out of hand, which I think is a a huge, just really, um, yeah, I think it's something that, that, um, both our revolution will need to deal with, um, if it wants to continue doing that type of work and that I think. And those
0: issues tended to often relate to our revolution's executive director,
2: Nina Turner. That yeah, she was she was sort of the focus of of that article, and yeah, a lot of a lot of power being um, centralized in her in her leadership.
0: From your conversations with people involved with our revolution, does it seem like the organization is is learning from this experience? Are you optimistic about that?
2: I am optimistic, and, and just to be totally frank, I haven't been um, too in touch with folks after I after I wrote this article, which was a little while ago, and so. I am not, you know, giving the most up-to-date um, dispatch on this, um, but I do think there is a willingness to learn from from uh, a lot of people within the, within the organization, um, and a sense that like this this stuff needs to be needs to be worked out. Um, was my sense when I was when I was talking to folks for this piece.
0: Moving on to the more establishment potshot critiques from, I think a lot of the sources in. There was a Times article and a put politi- and this lengthy political article, I think, and maybe others. It seems like a lot of them are sort of like an, a, an anonymous sources who might be, I don't know, like D Triple C aligned.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I think that's. I mean, when you hear like anonymous Democratic staffer quoted in in articles, that, that seems to be uh, almost always the case. But yeah, I mean, part of. Um part of the argument from those pieces was asking, you know, why wouldn't our revolution support um, Doug Jones, for instance, in, <laughs> in Alabama? Why wouldn't an organization birthed out of the campaign of a democratic socialist support? Um, a yeah, really real right head, he- real
0: head, real head scratcher.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, is, is why isn't totally, our
0: revolution the DCCC?
2: Right. It's, it's total bullshit. I mean, it's not. A, a good faith critique, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, and it's it's a mix, you know. I think there, um, again, are just a lot of growing pains for for any of this work.
0: One thing before we move on that I wanted to note on the question of our revolution to the cent- the question of their decentralization and and democratic empowerment is that Reclaim Philadelphia is the our revolution chapter in Philly, and I'm going to do an episode on them in a few weeks, and they are really one of the most impressive local left organizing groups out there are the sort of successor to the Bernie campaign in Philly and, or a critical organization in getting Larry Krasner elected DA. So there's one example of an our revolution chapter, uh, doing pretty incredible stuff.
2: Yeah. And, th- and there's this whole like ecosystem of organizations, which is really exciting to see in that, you know, to some extent has existed, um, on the right for much, for much longer. But um, yeah, there's, there's Reclaim, uh groups like Reclaim Philadelphia. Um, there's a similar group out in Chicago, which I, th- I think is called Reclaim Chicago. Um, and, you know, there's Justice Democrats, our revolution, DSA, and in many places is getting involved in electoral work. Um, and so there's a lot of folks who are excited to do, to do this sort of work and, and kind of, you know, actively um, figuring it out in some cases as they, as they go along. So
0: Justice Democrats, they play a much more behind the scenes, but it's become increasingly apparent to me, very critical role by providing this kind of invisible or less visible infrastructure to very important campaigns, including Ocasio-Cortez's and Cynthia Nixon. Tell me a little bit about the the work that they do.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mentioned uh, some of this, but um, part of it is this sort of uh, text banking um, technology, which which was used um, to to pretty wide success by the Sanders campaign, um, sort of voter contact uh, mechanisms and information. Um, there's some sort of messaging support, um, and they also um, something that happens. I think fairly behind the scenes is they'll conduct trainings with um, with uh, campaign staff with people who are running for office about different issues, and so. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez actually helped lead a, a, a webinar on um, the idea of a federal job guarantee um, several weeks before her election, uh, alongside some economists who have been um, who have been working toward that. And so, um, it provides candidates and and their staff, importantly, with um, some sort of um, primers and and just what the big policy issues are that um, they should be they should be paying attention to Um, and the sort of nuts and bolts of campaigning so how you Set up a campaign. How do you set up a campaign office? You know these sorts of things that um, actually, yeah, can be can be pretty uh, pretty hard to come by. And they're involved as well in in, sub, in uh, recruiting candidates um, who uh, represent you know a sort of diverse range in terms of race, gender, class, and age. Um, and so they um, can you know do basically ease the on ramp to people running running for office, uh, which is usually just such a such a high bar.
0: Yeah, just to give listeners concrete a concrete example, when I, as a reporter, get in touch with Ocasio-Cortez's campaign, it's someone from Justice Democrats who is working as her comms director. Cynthia Nixon's new policy director, Waleed Shahid, comes from Justice Democrats as well. So they're, they provide this really critical, technical, but also policy infrastructure that, that's just not really visible to a lot of, I think, people out there. A big piece of these groups approaches grassroots fundraising. And you write about former Bernie organizers, Becky Bond and Zach Exley, who have this new book, Rules for Revolutionaries. And they write that a campaign built on grassroots fundraising requires having, quote, a base that wants to support you. If you don't have that base, you have two options seek large donations from rich people and foundations, or build a base so you can seek small donor donations. Tell me about. Fundraising as an organizing strategy for the left, rather than just a money strategy.
2: To back up a little bit um, from that. I think one way that I saw Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's victory um, sort of framed is that um, you know people were discussing what the role of ideology um, in her campaign was. Was it you know that she um, campaigned as a democratic socialist? um, which kind of won her votes or, you know, was it that she wasn't accepting corporate money, um, and was, was, you know, taking that off the table. Um, and I, I think it's not quite so easy to parse, parse those, those two things out. And so, um, grassroots fundraising in a sense has an ideological dimension to it. Um, in that as, as, um, Becky and Zach lay out, um, in, in the book and, and that they, you know, actually did in practice through the Sanders campaign, um, grassroots fundraising is, uh, in a sense, a very different theory of power, right. And that if you are um, sort of a corporate politician and you get this money, um, from, uh, you know, fossil fuel companies, from wall street, from any number of sort of, um, horrible industries, you know, not only are you in a sense very beholden to um, to those donors, but you also aren't really um, as dependent as on talking to um, voters and uh, your funders. And so, you know, the I think the average um, donation to Ocasio-Cortez's campaign was $22. Um, the average donation to, to Bernie Sanders' campaign famously was $27. Um, and that just looks looks very different. Um, and you know requires um, you to build up just a whole sort of infrastructure in order to allow these donations to come in um, and to to get real um, to get real buy-in from your base. And you can't you can't really raise that kind of money unless you have um, a real commitment from a sort of wide um, wide range of people because there are you know fewer. Um, fewer rich people in the world than there are uh, people who, you know, are donating um, below like $50 um, to campaigns. So yeah,
0: I remember during the 2016 campaign, Bernie was pretty clear about one of the shortfalls of uh, big money fundraising. And it was something that hadn't really occurred to me before is that candidates who do that have to spend all of this time with small numbers of rich people. And candidates don't have that time.
2: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's not a good I use mean, of the I mean, that's why you, like, you,
2: you read the, uh, what is it, Politico playbook or something, um, whatever the one where it gives a sort of rundown of like who's hanging out on any given weekend, like in the Hamptons. Um, and it's always a very bipartisan crowd. You know, you have like Chuck Schumer hanging out with, I don't know, like Sheldon Adelson's kids or whatever. Um, and they, you <sighs> know, are like move in these same networks in part because of how, um how big donor fundraising operates, and that you, yeah, you hang out with rich people, even if you yourself, you know do not come from um, Hampton's money.
0: I wanted to ask about how dSA fits into the bigger left picture that justice Democrats and our evolution are also a part of i've I've twice encountered annoyed comments from people from groups that are. Not DSA; they may also be DSA members, but uh, these unnamed people are not. Uh, uh, they weren't speaking on as members of DSA, um, and they the, the comments amounted to a complaint that DSA gets too much credit for elections that other groups won. And my take on this is that DSA's organizational capacity, particularly for election, is definitely uneven. It depends a lot on the local chapters, but generally speaking, I think it's definitely fair. That DSA doesn't have to, the same technical organizational capacity for elections that groups like Justice Democrats have. Um, that said, and this is the case I made to one of these unnamed people who was knocking a local DSA chapter over drinks with me, my argument was that DSA is critically important for for kind of like a a, a, a much more basic reason, not that it's not doing. Very unbasic things in many cases, but like the most basically important thing that DSA doing is doing is creating this 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 new unified home for a renewed socialist left, and some people who are members take action within the organization, others outside. Um, and no question, DSA still has a lot of capacity building to do, but that the biggest thing DSA has done so far for me is is to dramatically open up political space on. On the american left and i think that has been very consequential w- what's your take on on the role that dsa plays
2: like you said it does really vary depending on where you are from what i've seen in in new york and the campaigns that dsa has worked on here i think there's something even more more basic about it um which is that they provide bodies um they provide people to go out and do canvassing and so um there are a lot of people involved in dsa and especially in a place like new York. Um, I think there are, you know, something like 3000 members of, of New York City, DSA um, between the five boroughs. And um, that's a lot of people who are excited to do um, do work supporting candidates who are speaking to their values um, and they can, you know, go out and, and just knock on doors. And that is one incredibly important piece of how to win an election is certainly not the only piece. And so, um, you know, I could very well see that um, being true in part, you know, what, what, what your friend was saying in terms of DSA taking credit in part because there is this huge national presence that, um, you know, in the kind of wake of red baiting and they're not having been a sort of recognizable socialist left in the United States for the last several decades um you know mainstream media outlets even are kind of looking to DSA and saying you know what is socialism in the 21st century um and and that is what's there in many cases and there are folks who are willing to talk about that um and they are you know doing this really important work um, and electoral work in many in many cases um but uh, but yeah again it, it varies from from place to place and i think um in uh Depending on where, where they are, you know, they may not necessarily be um, staffing the campaign office or coming up with messaging or, um, you know, even setting up campuses. But um, they are, you know, I think I think playing a real a real important role, at least, you know, from what I've seen in New York um, in terms of getting candidates, um, getting candidates names out there.
0: And also more generally, just I agree with that, but also just the most basic thing, just like ideologically recruiting people to the left.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that is what has been incredible to watch. I mean, after um, after Trump's election, I mean, their their uh, membership just shot up, and that that was in part um, because you know they did go to work, but also there just aren't that many organizations on the left which like you can sign up for um, and go to a meeting and get readily involved. Like that is a astoundingly rare thing, and um, in, in terms of you know the whole. Landscape of 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 what um, the left has looked like, and so it's a much easier on ramp for folks who are new to socialism, who are new to left politics more generally, um, and they can, you know, within a week, go to a meeting, join a working group, um, what have you, and that that is really really pretty unique.
0: You just touched on something that that brings me to my last question, which is, in your article, you noted that the left has had for many many years been very marginalized and at times almost embraced its marginal status and is only now or only very recently trying to figure out how to run and win, how to organize run and win. What are the the, the challenges that you see for us making our way out of the wilderness?
2: The biggest challenge that I see um, has more to do, I guess, with the right than it is to any, any fault of the left. And that the right has for the last, you know, 40, 50 more years, um, been building up think tanks been building up, uh, even, you know, grassroots organizing infrastructure that has just managed to so like totally capture the Mm -hmm. debate. Um, and so, you know, I think it's exciting to see groups like, revolution, like Justice Democrats, like DSA sort of coming up, but they're, um, it just really does pale in comparison to things like, you know, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, um, just all of this incredible intellectual infrastructure um, that the the right has built up. And, you know, we don't have anyone who is like handing a white paper on something like right to work to a freshman state assembly member um, in like Wisconsin. Like there is just no equivalent of that on the left. And I mean, if there is, I would love to hear about it. But um, I think that like building up that those sorts of leadership pipelines that funnel people into think tanks into academic departments into um, elected office, you know, that is, is feels still very far off. Um, and I think there's real excitement about building that. But um yeah I think there there's one sort of piece of this which is figuring out how do you get people elected of to office and there's another piece which I think is less explored, which is how do you govern once you get there and um, I think that governance question is, is is going to be a much harder one to to meet out
0: most definitely well, Kate Arnoff, thank you so very much thank you Aronoff is a writing fellow at In These Times and a contributing writer for The Intercept covering climate and American politics. She is also the author of A Revolution from Within, a new piece published at Dissent about our revolution and Justice Democrats. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that working class politics compels legislative recognition of particular interests of the workers by taking advantage of the divisions among the bourgeoisie itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. This week, a lot of episodes. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. There's a link in the show notes. Even a few bucks a month is a big help.